0: So I have a question uh, for those who have children. And it actually makes no difference what age the children happen to be or what age you might be. Although I suspect the older that you are, the answer, how the answer might come. But I need you to promise me something. First, that you won't answer it because I'm going to answer it for you. And second, in any any event, I don't think you tell me the truth. So I want to ask, which is your favorite child? And I'm going to tell you. Now notice I didn't say, because you know parents will always say I love them all equally or I love them all in the same but in different ways, and I believe that, but I didn't ask which child you love the most. I asked which was your favorite. And the only answer, honest answer to that question is, it depends when. (laughs) You see, sometimes it's this one, (laughs) and other times This is the one that belongs to my spouse, as in she's your daughter. You take care of it. And that is the truth of human life, is that we favor different children, different people, different friends, different ideas at different times, which really is the most human of all things. Now, if you were to turn this into a Jewish slash rabbi kind of question, it might go like this. Who is your favorite person? from Jewish history? And the answer to that question is like the one before. It all depends when. To be sure, there are many inspiring people to draw from, from the ancient to the modern and everything in between. The times of my life when the road ahead seemed so great, it was Jacob who seemed like my soulmate. And other times when life was grinding and pounding on me, I might have felt like Isaac. There were times and moments when Rabbi Akiva's courage and wisdom would call me, and other times when, like Samson, I wanted the strength to collapse the walls and make it all go away. But it always seems, in the end, that I come back to the same person. Now, there's some personal history which gives us some context. You see, when I was young, I had a crippling stutter. Now, no one knows where it came from but around the age of six, I had lost the ability to speak without tripping and gagging over words. My parents did what anyone would do for the child they loved. They called every expert they knew who would end up telling them the same thing. We don't know why, and maybe try some speech therapy. My grades plummeted as I withdrew from participating in class, and in solace, I would turn to books for comfort and escape. I had my friends, but I spent less time with them. I played sports, but didn't spend time hanging around after the game. I quit grade five French because the conversational part was too taxing, or at least that's what I wanted to tell myself. (laughs) By my early teens, I had worked my way out of the stutter. But when I moved to Israel for university, I was reminded that my old friend was buried, but far from gone. The skills and small tricks that I had developed to avoid stuttering in English were utterly and completely useless in Hebrew. Hebrew with its new round of glottal stops, fricatives, different symbolic combinations, threw me backwards. Two months into my studies in Israel, I was facing a heartbreaking reality. Maybe I had to leave. I couldn't participate in class. My conversational skills were at a standstill. Years of Jewish studies gave me excellent Hebrew skills but I was avoiding Israelis and sought out Anglos for friendship. My dreams of living there, of serving there, all seemed to be in an end. And it's then that I fell in love with the one person from our tradition above all the others, Moses. Because when Moses meets God for that first time in Mount Sinai, God tells him of the mission that he is destined for. That Moses would need to go back from whence he came. He would have to go back to Egypt. He would need to confront the Pharaoh that he ran away from. And his task would be to say to the Pharaoh and all of Egypt these very words, shalach et ami, let my people go. And we know the story that Moses demurs. After all, he argues, Egypt is very far away. And after all, the Pharaoh was a very powerful man with a great army, like really. And what can I do in the face of all of that? He says, "Keep mi Who am I to go to Pharaoh? And God says to him, Eieimach, but I will be with you. Anohi, I will be with you. I, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, the God of heaven and earth, the creator of the stars, Of the soul and the breath, Anochi, I, the God of everything. But even for Moses, this isn't enough. Because in his heart, Moses knows the task of this job and the arguing with God carries for pages before the real truth comes out. Because in the end, we discover that it's not Pharaoh or his army, it's not the fear of returning into Egypt. It's not the confusion that maybe the Israelites would or would not trust him. It's not the eruding from his quiet shepherd's life to a destination he does not know. Now at the end of this page-long discussion comes the truth. And to this day, as you read those words, you can hear the whimper, the whisper of Moses' voice. (laughs) Lo ishtvarim anuchih. I am not a man of words. My mouth is heavy with a stutter. Think about it. He wasn't afraid of failure or capture or even death. Moses was terrified of words. And I understood that. And yet remarkably, all we have of his life are his words. There are no monuments to Moses. There is no grave, no known grave to find him. There are no pictures. There is no dynasty that followed him. The only thing that we have of Moses are the words that he left us. Those words are called the five books of Moses. The last of those five books is called Devarim in Hebrew, which means speaking. The entire final book of the Torah is filled with the final speech given by Moses to the people. And think about it. The man who cannot lead the people out of Egypt because of his stutter refuses him to speak, in the end becomes a man who is holy and completely of words. Not only that, but this man so empty of words establishes for us a covenant of words. We read them, we study them, and we pray them. We have no sacrifices and we have no temple. All we have are the words in the book that you hold And the prayers from your heart and your soul. This man of no words gave birth to a people who are full of words. Which contains a frighteningly important lesson for each of us. It says that your strength is found not in your strong places but in your broken places. That people with great talent may amaze or excite you. But in the end they are only using the things that God has given them. But when your broken pieces become your strength. They are not just amazing or exciting, they are inspiring and liberating. And I am here today talking to you because I believed that then, and I believe it now even more. All of this came back to me months ago on a cool, star-filled night, late night in Jerusalem. You see, I was in Israel participating in a program that is very close to my heart, it was raising funds for the wounded Israeli soldiers. That evening's dinner came to an end. The people went back to their rooms, but I stayed behind with one of the men. who took a seat outside the hotel and talked. Ohad, his name was Ohad, told me a story. And when he finished, I made him a promise that I would share it with you. And so here it is. You see, the most terrifying day of any Israeli parent's life is their child's 18th birthday. As the only son in the family, Ohad's mother made him, a, made him promise that he wouldn't serve in a combat unit, but all Ohad wanted was to serve in a combat unit. The weeks and days leading up to his induction were difficult ones in his home, but they had struck a deal. He had heard that there were openings in the air defense unit. These units were given full combat training and were classified as combat units, but weren't on frontline duty. They were charged with neutralizing handheld RPGs and other missile threats. And a year into his service, none of that would become true. He was stationed in Chevron and Hebron on patrol when they were given the coordinates to investigate an explosion. Those coordinates took them to an abandoned cul-de-sac. They left the car running and stepped outside to inspect the area when it was flooded with gunfire. He screamed to his unit to get back into the Jeep and return fire, but the Jeep was then targeted with mortars. They radioed for support and maintained their position. When the support finally arrived and the smoke cleared, two of the four men who were with him were dead. Despite being seriously wounded, his stomach, spleen, and liver had been hit, and he himself was near death. Ohad was clutching onto his dead friend. What followed for him were many surgeries depression at losing his friends and guilt for not being able to serve, and then a slow reintegration into civilian life. He went to school. He married his girlfriend in a ceremony in her parents' backyard. They bought a dog and settled into life in Tel Aviv. And here he lowers his head and he tells me, you know, I wish the story ended here. A year into his marriage, his wife is diagnosed, diagnosed with cervical cancer and she dies six months later. And there was silence between us. At that moment, all I could hear was the soft rustling of the cypress trees swaying in the evening. I took my hand and I put it on his shoulder and I told him, Achim, my brother, you've lost so much. And Ohad lifts his head and, without even a moment's hesitation, says to me, But I've gained so much. And he wasn't lying. Ohad works full-time with other wounded soldiers. Ohad had the courage to look for love again, and he married this past summer. Which is also to say that of all the broken things that we face in life, that the broken can also become beautiful. The ancient rabbis would say that when you and I look for a tool, which could be a car, clothes, a hammer, or a frying pan, that we look for the most perfect one that we can find. But they say that this is the opposite of what God does. When God needs a tool to fix the world, he uses broken ones. And those broken tools are you and me. Yom Kippur is not a day of shame. It is a moment that we see our broken pieces and we find our way to something better with them. But look who I'm telling this to. You who stayed in this room for Yisker, you know those broken pieces. You've been cut and hit by life. You've lost the beloved and the beautiful. Your mothers and your fathers, your husbands and wives, your brothers, sisters our sons and daughters are gone. And yes, the losses we know, but that is not why you've come here. You've come here to remember what grows and lives long after the last touch of someone we love has been lifted from our skin. You see, in the meadows just outside of Prague is a small town named Terezin, which before the Second World War had been a town of just 5,000. When it was eventually shut down and turned to a camp, that had detained 55,000 Jews. When the International Red Cross visited Terezin, shop windows were filled with food, and some prisoners were given new clothes in order to stand along the route where the representatives took on their way to lunch with the Nazi commanders. Had the investigators bothered to turn open the faucets, they would have realized that the plumbing was fake. Had they bothered to walk into the stores They would have seen empty shelves, that food was only left in the shop windows. But the real indictment of life in Terezin is seen in the poetry and drawings of some of the 15,000